So we are in a study of the book of 1 Samuel, and right now we are looking at the life of David. And out of that life, we are looking at the theme of suffering. The Apostle Paul wrote some very extraordinary words about suffering, 2 Corinthians 4, 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. To see our bodies as clay pots is insightful, but to grasp also that God has put this, placed this treasure in these very ordinary vessels is mind-boggling. So this is what gave the, the apostle the strength to endure. Verse 8 of that same chapter, we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. So we use the term critical thinking to mean that you can analyze something and then come up with your own conclusion. So the Apostle Paul has analyzed suffering because he has experienced it probably more than any Christian alive. But he came to this conclusion about suffering. And here it is. 2 Corinthians 4.16 Therefore, we do not lose heart. That's the message today. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes on not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, and what is unseen is eternal. Now keep that paragraph up there for me, please. And I'm going to show you the contrast that's in this paragraph. So first of all, he states that we do not lose heart, even though we are suffering. And notice the first contrast. Though outwardly, this is our bodies, are wasting away, is contrasted with yet inwardly. So outwardly we're wasting, but inwardly we're getting, we're getting stronger, we're, we're being renewed. Then he contrasts, all the suffering we have is light and momentary, and he contrasts that with eternal. Then he says, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, and he contrasts with what is seen is what is unseen. What is seen is temporary. And what is unseen is eternal. No wonder he does not lose heart. This is the essence of Christianity. To see beyond this world. To understand that there's purpose in our suffering. And that there's something better that awaits us. There's no denying from the Apostle Paul in his writing and in Christianity that suffering is painful. That it's real. But... It is temporary. And what cannot be seen with the eye is the powerful hand of God working out His purposes. What cannot be seen is God's powerful hand. So we're looking at David's very painful path to the throne, a path that takes 13 years filled with suffering. And many of his psalms speak about this path, this road to the throne. It coincides with Christ's own words, the Messiah must suffer. Let's read the passage we're going to look at today. 1 Samuel chapter 23, 
15 through 29. It's the last half of chapter 23. While David was at Horesh in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. And Saul's son Jonathan went to David at Horesh and helped him find strength in God. Don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. The two of them made a covenant before the Lord. Then Jonathan went home, but David remained at Horesh. The Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah and said, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horesh, on the hill at Hakalah, south of Jeshimon? Now, your majesty, come down whenever it pleases you to do so, and we will be responsible for giving him into your hands. Saul replied, The Lord bless you for your concern for me. Go and get more information. Find out where David usually goes and who has seen him there. They tell me he is very crafty. Find out about all the hiding places he uses and come back to me with definite information. Then I will go with you, and if he is in the area, I will track him down among all the clans of Judah. So they set out and went as if ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the desert of Maon, in the Arabah, south Ereba, south of Jeshimon. Saul and his men began the search, and when David was told about it, he went down to the rock and stayed in the desert of Maon. When Saul heard this, he went into the desert of Maon in pursuit of David. Saul was going along one side of the mountain, and David and his men were on the other side, hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his forces were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul saying, Come quickly, the Philistines are raiding the land. And Saul broke off his pursuit of David and went to meet the Philistines. That is why they call this place Selah Hamalekoth. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. So that's what is before us today. The best way to understand the Old Testament is in the light of the New Testament. So we understand Jesus' life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection through the life of David. It is a lens through which we can look at David. Understanding David's story better helps us understand Jesus' story. So we are very clear that Saul has an obsession to kill David. This all started when Saul and Jonathan determined that Saul had this incredible hostility to kill David. And when they were convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt David fled. He first fled to Nob, where priests were killed, and then to one place, and then to a cave called Adullam, and then to the country of Moab, to the forest of Horesh, to Kila, and, and now in the wilderness of Zeph. So he is in this wilderness, and he hears about the threat that Saul, a new threat that has come out against him. While David was at Horesh in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. Now Saul's jealousy climaxed when he killed Goliath. Saul thought it should have been me doing that. And then it intensified when the women would sing the song, Saul has killed his thousands, but David is ten thousands. And then it became more, more intense when every mission David was sent on, he came back successful. Missions where he had been sent on a suicide mission, hoping the enemy would kill him, but it was the opposite. 
David was successful in every mission, faithful to the king. But Saul had had enough. He wanted David dead. And this obsession was eating him up. David, on the other hand, was in a very low place. He had been faithful to Saul. He'd done everything he knew right, and yet Saul is out to kill him. He's in a very harsh place, this wilderness. His mental state is bad. His physical state is bad. And he's in a very, very low point. And God sends him his best friend, Jonathan, the very son of the king. In verse 16, And Saul's son, Jonathan, went to David at Horesh and helped him find strength in God. This had to be an incredible moment for David when this man who loves him, who has already abdicated his future place as king to David because he recognizes God has his hand on David's life. And when Jonathan found David in the wilderness, this is the RSV, and Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand. Now I introduced last week that the writer is introduced in this chapter the theme of the hand. I want to go through and show you through the whole chapter because this, by using the word hand, he is describing David's hand, Saul's hand, and God's hand. It's a mechanism, but it's very powerful. David's hand has defeated the Philistines. Viathar, the priest, has brought the ephod that was his father's and delivered it to David by his hand. And then there's Saul's hand that is out to kill David. Follow me through these. Now, some of them are in the NIV and some are in the RSV, which stands for the Revised Standard Version. So let me just explain. I use the NIV because it is a dynamic translation. It means that it translates the words from the original Greek and Hebrew without trying to be literal. That's an advantage, I think. But sometimes it's a disadvantage, as the case with the hand. The RSV is more literal, like the King James. So that is the advantage of having more than one translation. For instance, here is a, an example of a dynamic translation. In Spanish, we would say if a person is real wordy when they talk, they're not precise, and they just talk and talk and talk, and they never get to the point. In English, we would say they beat around the bush, all right? But if you said that in Spanish, they would have no idea what you're saying. They'd imagine somebody just running around the bush. But if you said, this person doesn't have any hairs on their tongue, that is exactly the same thing. Oh, that's what you mean. That is a dynamic translation. When you go for the meaning, you don't go for the literal translation. But sometimes the literal translation is necessary. So that's why I have put some in the RSV so I can follow this all the way through. Because in Hebrew, the hand is in each of these verses. So verse 4, go down to Kila. I'm going to give the Philistines into your hand. That was God speaking to David. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, fled to David, to Kila, he came down with an ephod in his hand. Verse 7, Saul was told that David had gone to Kila, and he said, God has delivered him into my hands. Notice that's Saul talking, not God. 
verse 11. Now, verse 11 and verse 12 sound almost like they're saying the same thing, but you have to pay close attention. They are not. Verse 11, Saul was told that David had gone to Kilah, and he said, God delivered into my hands. Verse 11, will the men of Kilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as thy servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, I beseech thee, tell thy servant, the Lord said he will come. So in this one, he's asking, is Saul going to come down here? And is he going to ask these people where I am? And will they tell him? Yes, they will. Now, verse 12. Then David said, will the men of Kilo surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will. So first, they're going to ask. And second, they're going to turn, turn you over. Each time using the word hand. Verse 20. Now, your majesty, these are the Ziphites, these loyal subjects of Saul. Now, your majesty, come down whenever it pleases you to do so, and we will be responsible for giving him into your hands. Verse 14, day after day, Saul searched for him, but God did not give David into his hands. That's kind of an overriding verse right there, saying God is in control. No matter who is working for Saul, no matter what Saul is doing, but God did not give David into his hands. Verse 16, and Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. 17, don't be afraid, he said, my father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. Any word repeated that much, we should pay attention to it. And it's pointing those three things out. David's hands, Saul's hand, but most of all, God's hand. They represent power, and whose power is going to prevail? David seems pretty powerless against an entire army. And Saul seems so powerful, but it's God's hand that will prevail. So Jonathan comes to visit David. Now Saul can't find David, but Jonathan seems to have no problem finding him, and he finds him. He says to David in verse 17, don't be afraid, he said, my father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel, and I will become second to you, even my father Saul knows this. Now whenever you see in the Bible the words do not fear, then they are spoken very often. They're not words that are meant to cause a person to not believe that they are in trouble. They, what they are is to try to get you to open your spiritual eyes, such as you remember the incident where Elisha, the prophet Elisha, is being pursued by an entire army. And he and his servant spend the night in this particular place. And the next morning, the servant is out, you know, getting some water, some firewood. And he sees the enemy army. And he is literally terrified. And he runs to Elisha and he says, they're out there, the whole army. And Elisha comes out and, and he says, all right, let me pray for you. So he prays and he asks God to open his spiritual eyes. And when he does, he sees the spiritual army far more powerful than the physical army. This is what do not fear means. Do not fear because God's hand is more powerful. Do not fear because even though what you see with your eyes looks like it's impossible, there's another reality. 
It's not just an attempt to comfort. It's an attempt to cause us to open our eyes and see God. So how could it be possible for David, seeing that Saul is coming out to kill him with an army, how could he not be afraid? Jonathan knows the answer, and here it is. You shall be king over Israel, because God has told him that, and Jonathan knows it. It's the promise that God has given him that will help him not to be afraid. So David could look at the army, and he could be fearful. Or he could look at that promise that's in his heart. It's not to be seen, it's unseen, but it would take away his fear. And if he did, he would do this. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary and what is unseen is eternal. David had to do that. That's what makes all the difference. Just think about this. It was very difficult for the disciples to do that. When they came together in Galilee, he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. That was devastating for them to hear. It was frightful. It was fearful. They will kill him, and on the third day, he will be raised to life. And his disciples were filled with grief, but they missed that part. On the third day, he will be raised to life. This time for David is much like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was very, very difficult for them. But Jonathan believes that the promise that David will be king over Israel, he believes it so much that he has said, you're going to be king and I will be second to you. This is not a claiming of privilege. He should be first. But he has abdicated that position and he's encouraging David, encouraging him in God. Now he says, my father even knows this. And Saul did know it, but he would deny it. He hated it. He fought against it. And he'd do everything he could to stop it, even though he would never be able to stop it. And then in verse 18, the two of them, David and Jonathan, make a covenant between them. This is a reaffirmation of the covenant that they have already made. It reaffirms their relationship to each other and their relationship to the Lord. And because Jonathan is committed to David, he has to part. They can't stay there. He has to return. It will be the last time Jonathan will ever see David. In verse 18, then Jonathan went home, but David remained at Horesh. Now, there's two episodes we're looking at in this chapter. The first episode with Jonathan coming to strengthen David. Now, the second episode is Saul pursuing David and an attack of the Philistines. David, in the second episode, has a totally different attitude. The fear is gone. The visit from Jonathan has strengthened him. He is trusting God. So first of all, we, we leave David for a moment here, and we travel to Gibeah, where the Ziphites, they are the inhabitants of where David is hiding. And they make this 25-mile journey to where Saul is, and this is what they say to him. The Ziphites went to Saul at Gibeah and said, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horesh? on the hill of Hakala, south of Jeshimon. Now, these are just the kind of people that Saul loves, somebody that can tell him about David. His whole world is about David, and they've come with exact information. They know where he's at. They can tell Saul. Now, they say, now, your majesty, come down whenever it pleases you to do so, and we will be responsible for giving him into your hands. 
Saul feels like he's won the lottery with these people. In fact, he's so obsessed with David, this is more important than anything else in his kingdom, knowing where David is, and he's so pleased to have found such friends. Notice his reply. The Lord bless you for your concern for me. This powerful king sees himself as the victim. And here are some people who have come to help him. It doesn't matter how powerful you are or how successful you are. You can always see yourself as a victim. Saul does. He is a prime example of that. David had slipped from his grasp the last time because his intelligence, David's intelligence is better than Saul's. And he's determined not to let that happen. So he wants to be very careful. He doesn't want to go down there tromping down with 3,000 soldiers and let David get away. So he's going to take the extra step and be extra careful. So he says to these Ziphites, go and get more information. Find out where David usually goes and who he has seen, who has seen him there. They tell me he's very crafty. Find out about all the hiding places he uses and come back to me with definite information. Then I will go with you and... If he is in the area, I will track him down among all the clans of Judah. Notice there, he's fearful, he's desperate, he's deadly, he's dangerous. He's in pursuit of David. Now the chase starts. Saul with thousands of his soldiers, the Ziphites acting as his spies, giving him all the intelligence. So they set out and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. In verse 20. 23. Now David and his men were in the desert of Maon in the Arabah south of Jeshimon. This is precisely the area that the Ziphites said he would be. So Saul and his men begin the search. They've come down. This is precisely what Saul said he would do. And when David was told about it, he went down to the rock and stayed there in the desert of Maon. When Saul heard this, he went into the desert of Maon in pursuit of David. That David definitely has more accurate intelligence, more better intelligence than Saul. So he escapes the first place where Saul is going to find him. He moves, Saul follows him. Now it appears what we have here is kind of like Saul with his men are forming kind of like a pincer movement. He's got his soldiers moving in two directions and David's in the middle. And they are going to close in on him and capture him. Verse 26, Saul was going along one side of the mountain, and David and his men were on the other side, hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his forces were closing in on David and his men to capture them. So it's just that moment when they're just about to close in. It's all over for David. But you remember what we've been reading about? God's hand. Saul's hand thinks he's got him. And he even says so. God will have delivered him into my hands. But that's Saul saying that. All right. Everything seems to have lined up. I mean, he really has won the lottery. These people have pinpointed. I got the accuracy. I got the soldiers in place. And we have him. And we're holding our breath. We're waiting for the axe to fall. And at that very moment, a messenger came to Saul saying, Come quickly. The Philistines are raiding the land. Now, who... Who roused up the Philistines at that very moment? God's hand. The same one who set the well at the moment to swallow Jonah. The same one who provided the five little fishes. And Saul has to leave. David was caught, but he was never caught. Because it was God fulfilling his purposes. And what irony 
who is the best at killing Philistines and defeating Philistines? David, the very, the very one he is pursuing. So it says in verse 28, Then Saul broke off his pursuit of David and went to meet the Philistines. That is so amazing. So absolutely amazing. Then Saul broke off his pursuit of David and went to meet the Philistines. That is why they call this place Selah Hamalekoth. Or, as another translation, the RSV says, the rock of escape. So that rock is the place where David escaped the hand of Saul. In verse 29, and David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. This is near the Dead Sea. He moved from that area. Now, I said verse 14 was really an overarching theme of this entire chapter because this has been a long chapter, two weeks to get through it. Let's go back and read that. <clears throat> David stayed in the wilderness strongholds and in the hills of the desert of Ziph. <clears throat> day after day Saul searched for him, but God did not give David into his hands. His deliverance was God. Do not fear, David. You will be king. It doesn't look like it. What I can see tells me I'm dead. I'm going to be captured. I'm going to be killed. But what I cannot see tells me God is going to protect me. I will one day be king. So you can look at what you can see, or you can look at what you can't see. The Apostle Paul says, go ahead and look at the temporal if you want to. You will be very disheartened. But if you can look at what is unseen, the eternal... These sufferings will seem light and momentary. That almost may feel like an insult to some of us. Light and momentary, it feels pretty heavy what I'm going through. That's because you're only looking at it in the light of the temporary. When you look at it in the light of eternity, it's light and momentary in the light of his glory. The deliverance of David anticipates the resurrection of Jesus. Something his disciples could not comprehend, no matter how many times Jesus told them. All of the followers of Jesus, and it's understandable because no one has ever resurrected. The only person who's ever been resurrected in the world is Jesus. Even now, we have difficulty comprehending the resurrection. How a dead body that has been dead for years and years, or has been completely decomposed or cremated or burned alive or lost or blown up, how that body could come back. But this is the message in the book of Acts, this church that had been empowered by the Holy Spirit, the message of the resurrection. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, you will not let your Holy One see decay. So when Jesus' body is placed in the tomb... God's hand will not abandon his son. Just like he would not abandon David to Saul and Saul's hostile intentions for David, God did not abandon him. God would not abandon his son. And this is from Peter's sermon. He's quoting from Isaiah 53. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, you will not let your Holy One see decay. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. If you understand 
that your suffering has meaning, that God is bringing purpose out of your suffering, then you can say with Paul, therefore, that therefore is based on the fact that God's hand is working out a purpose. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. I've been studying a book called Abraham Lincoln's Most Powerful and Meaningful Speech, the second inaugural address. It's only 703 words long. It took him about seven minutes to read it. An inaugural address where politicians today speak an hour, hour and a half, two hours, and we don't know what they say when they get through. All the pundits have to tell us, like we're idiots. We probably are for listening to them. Abraham Lehman spoke seven minutes. I can read it in three and a half. But he paused seven minutes to read this speech. It has four references, four biblical references. And each biblical reference references the New Testament and the Old Testament. This theme at the second inaugural address was this. They had suffered through four years of this horrific war. By that point, the war was almost over. 630,000 soldiers. Lincoln had been struggling with the meaning of suffering. 630,000. When he went to give his Gettysburg Address, which also was only a few minutes long, he had sent detailed people to gather all the possessions of every soldier, north and south, before they were buried, and these would be saved for relatives and given to them. But the number one possession from both the south and the north was a Bible, the New Testament or portion of the Bible. About 65% of the 50,000 dead had a Bible. That had a profound, when they told the president, this had a profound, so he comes out in his second inaugural speech, both pray to the same God, both read the same Bible. So he struggles with the idea that they're reading the same Bible, obviously reading the same Bible, knowing they were probably going to be killed going into battle. That's how they prepared for death, both sides. But I believe Abraham Lincoln was led to the conclusion that the purpose of this war was God's purposes. It would be very, very difficult to determine, did the North have his purpose? Did the South have his purpose? That God had his purpose. He says in the speech that maybe God would have to draw out for every drop of blood that the whip had drawn over 250 years of slavery, that God would draw it out with a sword. What he had done to bear the burden was to say, I don't really know how this all fits together, but that God's judgments and God's purposes are being worked out in this horrible, horrible war. It gave him heart. It gave him the ability to write down 700 words that inspired the nation, a nation that had been torn apart. He was only a few days away from his own death that prepared him for his death. I will say to all of us, no matter what you are going through, you will lose heart 
if you don't believe there's purpose to what's going on in your life. The purpose comes from God. It comes from His hand. You don't have to understand it. All you have to do is believe and see that what is unseen is being moved by God's hand. Now, if you're David and you've been encouraged by Jonathan and you come that close to this pincer move of being caught, you can almost feel the breath of Saul's army on you and suddenly Saul has to leave. Are you not encouraged to know God did that? God did that. I encourage all of us in this Thanksgiving season to look back over your life and just say, God did that. That was God's hand. God did that. God did that. That's what Thanksgiving is all about.